0: strategically envisioning a word for you. So would you welcome Pastor Dave uh, Vichup. You know, aside from being all those things, Dave was a pastor for decades, and so I'm really excited that he, and later on, his wife Wendy will be joining us. So Dave, bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's a great opportunity for me to be here with you. I remember when Pat, uh, Pastor Chad was getting ready to come and plant this. So, uh, for me to be able to be here all this time later and see what the Lord's doing is awesome. Been here a few other times in the last few years and, um, just want to bring you greetings from 217 of those Northwest church districts or churches from, uh, Fargo all the way to the, uh, Olympic Peninsula. Anybody called the Fargo? We need a church there. Come on, you can send people to Ghana, you can go to Fargo. <laughs> kind of the opposite cultures. Um, we, uh, the United States Four Square Church is comprised of about 1,600 little plus of that uh, families of faith, as well as outside of the U.S., about 68,000. So what you guys are experiencing with Ghana is kind of normal for Foursquare. It's kind of like the heartbeat of Foursquare. And our founder was first a missionary before she ever became a pastor. And so missions is at the heart of it. And any of you who you've been to Ghana, anybody else? I think you all should plan a trip. Every one of you, honestly. Honestly. It will change your life. I was just thinking back uh, as I was watching that video and seeing Dan's posts on Facebook of uh, my trip to Kenya. Uh, the, the roads, they don't exist. Yeah, you, I mean, I literally rode miles on the back bumper of a car. Because you have to get out every so often and push and go around and fill holes because they just had a rain fill holes with boulders so the car could get through. So I mean, it's going at walking speed. So like, why get in and out again? I'll just stand <laughs> here on the bumper. Um, so it's great that you guys are doing that. Pastor Dan will see more happen in these couple of weeks than he'll see in years. It's just an amazing thing to see God's hand at work. And it means so much to the people that you visit. I mean, you can't even... I cannot express to you what it means to them that you sent your pastor there, uh, the joy that they will have in receiving him, and he will be pulled in so many, so many different directions. Um, so good for you, good on you, well done, good sending, now go. <laughs> <Amen. clears throat> I... Um, I want to talk about a place that I just was last week. I spent a week at a picture that you're going to see on your screen. A place called Mount Angel, a monastery. The exact opposite of Dan's experience was my experience the same week. He was out doing, and I was being. I mean, for me, I got to go and hang out in a monastery with quiet. Uh, the the monk that runs this is Father Pius. I'm going to guess that his mama didn't give him that name. I don't know many two-year-olds you'd call pious. Uh, But you're hanging out there, and uh, for me to go there, I literally go there with kind of like, Lord Jesus, please, I'll be good. Don't make me do this. Um, Because there's something inherent in me that wants to be active and to be doing. And part of our Christian experience is we have both doing and being. And I like the doing part way better than the being part. Some of you would love to just go sit at the feet of Jesus for days at a time. That's not me. I would rather go, uh, go do anything. I don't know. Just like there's so much to do. And Pastor Randy's up here saying, just focus completely on me, right? And I'm going like, ah, I'd like to, but I'm ADD. And so like while the worship's going, I'm seeing those stars come and I'm like waiting for Chewbacca to show up and an old Princess Leia, you know, that's how I'm worshiping God, but there's Chewbacca and there's Princess Leia and they better make a new one or she's going to have to come in a walker, you know, I'm like... They better make it faster than the last time, and so all of this stuff goes on in my head while I'm trying to worship God. So you can tell that my whole week in a monastery of being quiet, I don't do very well at that. In fact, one of the things they're teaching me, which is way more school than it is than it is uh, solitude, is to um, is is to be solitude, is to be quiet, and like I um, I've gotten to where I can set my timer for three minutes. That's how good I am at it. And I hope to be able to stay focused on the Lord for three minutes. That's seriously my life goal. And I can't do it yet. So you can tell that there's some issues that I have to deal with. And then they taught me that I have more issues than I wanted to know. And um, So Dallas Willard says this. He says the greatest threat to devotion to Christ is service for Christ. The greatest threat to devotion to Christ is service for Christ. Now many of us, our service can be what we say becomes our God. I remember standing with one just dynamic worship guy and saying like, this this out here, that is not your God. He's out here. He lives in here. That's your God. Your service is not God. He's the one that died on a cross for your sins so that you can have relationship with Him. So don't equate service to God. One of the reasons I don't like going to the monastery, which I shouldn't say I don't like it. I just dread it when I'm going. I'm like, Lord Jesus, please, no. Um, I'll be good. I just feel like I'm giving up control. I don't know how about how you feel about that. Like All of a sudden, all your technology is gone. All your, like, everything, you're just like, you and God. It's just gone. And I feel out of control when I'm just quiet. I was like, I want, I got to push the button. I got to make things happen. I got... Things to do. I have people to make sure that... that I mean, I have 217 churches. Somebody, I need some, that There's a church open here. There's an interview happening here right now. There's a pastor being installed here. There's all these different things going on in my world. And I want to make sure that they're happening right. And yet, it's being that's what's important. And that giving up control is a big deal for me. I love... People think like, they hate their phones going off. I love it. It's like adrenaline. Boom. Oh yes. I get to do something. I get to respond to attacks. Woo! I have all kinds of quirks. But one of them is that I love to be on mission. Who do you have on mission? I know. Let's send Dan. He can go to Ghana and do mission. Let's send Adam Henderson to Texas. He can do mission. That way someone else is in charge and they're involved. and it just made me think about uh, my own family. I have a picture here of the, uh, the whole brood at Disneyland this last Christmas. And um, we now have seven grandchildren. And the other people we now call their drivers because they're not important. The happiest life of a grandparent's life are the... The uh, the northern lights, the headlights of them coming, and the taillights of them going, too, trust me. <laughs> yeah, they wear you out. So we hung out with these guys for um, for a day at Disneyland, and there's seven of them, like I mentioned, and, and uh, we've got to be able to see them grow. It's just an amazing experience to be a grandparent. Um, the blonde kid, Phoenix, in that picture, he's four years old, Mark and Bethany, their uh, second child, and he came up to me just before church recently, and he goes, "Grandpa." He handed me a pair of scissors. He goes, "Here, Grandpa, cut holes in your knees so you can be cool." He's four. And then Mercy, the six-year-old, said, "Grandpa, don't do that. Don't do that. You're not cool." She said, "You're handsome." Thank you, Mercy good to get to a stage in life where you know you're not cool because it's so hard work to try to be cool isn't it and nobody even cares if you realize how little people think of you you wouldn't worry about what they do and uh, and so they're trying to be cool and I'm like yeah never was thought I tried at times but I really am not and uh, one of the problems with sending a missionary or sending someone to africa or sending someone to texas is that we have a tendency to focus on the baby anybody here out a child bring it home Guys, keep your elbows in, uh, bring it home, and what matters? The baby. Nothing else matters. You give birth to a brand new church, what matters? That brand new baby. You give birth to a new mission, what matters? That mission. Well, I'm here to tell you that that's not the only thing that matters. It's not that we send missionaries and that we don't do the work at home. Because if we don't do the work at home, there's not going to be any sending. One of the things that being around my kids has helped me to understand is it looks like they're having all the fun. Two of them planted churches, one in August, one in September in California. We happened to be able to go to both launches. I have never seen more stressed out people in my whole, whole life. I mean, planting a church is one of the biggest, most things I ah, just like. It takes so much work, so much energy, so much time, so much networking, and both of them parachuted into cities, major cities in California, and tried to build community to where people would actually show up. Imagine that. You're on your own. You know no one. You drag a few friends with you, beg them to come with you, please help. And then I remember standing out in front of the door of this one elementary school going, God, please bring someone. As it's about time for the downbeat of the first song. And there's so much excitement, but yet there's so much stress and fear and pressure, finances and all this stuff. And you have no systems and you have no stuff. You can't turn on. And one, 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 one of our church plants, kids, they literally found their building two weeks before they started. They were going to do what you're doing here, basically use another church, and all of a sudden this elementary school opened. They didn't have a speaker. They didn't have a wire. They didn't have a cable. They didn't have a sign. Nothing. And in two weeks, they pulled that all off. you imagine? I stood there. I'm just kind of like being on grandpa duty. And all I'm doing is taking care of the grandkids, but all I'm really doing is answering the the door for the UPS man. Ding dong! Because just deliver a cable and a speaker and a... You know, just think of all this stuff. And we're so excited to have these babies, but like I'm just telling you, it's not very easy. When they visit, it's not very easy. And I'm pretty happy to let them, with energy, go back home and you do that, because like I did it for a weekend, I'm good. And, and, there's, and it's not so bad being an empty nester. I still get to do all kinds of things, and it's whatever I want. It's not so bad. And I'm still on mission. But the problem with getting old and the problem with churches that get old is the first thing that we do is we take all of the dysfunction of that church plant and all of those UPS doorbells and all of the things that get messed up in the meantime and we go like, that's terrible. We have to do what? Get organized. So we develop systems for this and systems for that. And I'm not a very good systems guy, but trust me, systems are pretty important, aren't they? And so pretty soon, we systematize the fathers, man. We've got it all figured out. And guess what we forget? Oftentimes, we forget who's on mission. Ah, we'll send somebody on mission, because we're doing our system. Don't mess the system up. The roads need to be perfect. The order of service needs to be perfect. You get good at doing what you do, don't you? I'm not saying don't get good. I'm just saying, like, there's not an either-or. There's a both-and. Now Dan, he's freaked out that he only got a little bag of pretzels all the way across the country. and Got his legs cramped. And showed a picture of him on Facebook with a chicken in his background, like it might be for dinner. Oh no, it not might be. He already ate that. <laughs> Trust me, I've been there. I remember watching this lady walk in with a chicken in her purse, and then a couple of hours later going, oh, okay, great. You know, something about anesthetizes you in America. We can just go to the grocery store, and, where they grew that chicken, and it just was like, you know, not organic. It's just the way it is. We have problems, but our problem isn't so much the mission. It becomes how we do life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you know. Of him, he's a, one of my favorite people in Christian history. He, w- he died in a Nazi prisoner of war camp because of the pastor. He felt like it was his responsibility to take out Hitler. Yeah, that's a whole different world, isn't it? He says this, the church, ex- the church is only the church when it exists for others. The church is only the church when it exists for others. The problem, again, when we get old, we focus where? Inward. How to take care of myself instead of how to do mission. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking care of yourself. There's nothing wrong with systems. Because let me just tell you this. If you're not doing quality discipleship as a church, the chances are you're not really functioning as Jesus called you to. He didn't just say, go make decisions. He said to go make what? Disciples. You can't have church without a systematic discipleship plan or program. Discipleship is valuable. It's important. So as much as I poo-hoo all these things, just know there has to be a balance of these. Otherwise, we don't do what we're called to do. Now, I recently read a book, recently, maybe six months ago, called Churchless by Barna. Uh It impacted me greatly because in those statistics... Now, Barna is like... He's a numbers guy. He does surveys, and so um, probably one of the best that that is at that as a Christian, and what he does is he says, this is what the American people are thinking, these are the statistics. Now what I assumed to be true and what I read to be true were very different, and the biggest things that he said in his book that I'll just give you a few quotes out of, is that we have to recapture an urgency to fulfill the Great Commission while treating our churchless Churchless friends with respect let's be honest, church, we have not been very respectful to sinners. We call them names, we preach against them, we mock them, and we are them Churchless people are just the same as us they just haven 't submitted their lives to Jesus they were the they are the image of God. They're created in the image of God. They just don't know it. God doesn't work in their lives. They just don't know it. God's wooing them. And every person has a spiritual story, no matter how dark they are. God's trying to do something in their lives. And the respect fashion is something that we have to we have to change. I just also read another book called The Art of Neighboring. It's a great book. There's a whole thing in there called The Grid of Shame. It's actually the cover photo where you put yourself in the middle of a tic-tac-toe grid and then you say, give me your, the name, the uh, occupation, and a personal antidote about every one of your neighbors in that tic-tac-toe grid around your neighborhood. They call it The Grid of Shame because most of us, shamefully, can't do more than a couple. We don't even know our neighbors, but we're supposedly on mission because we sent somebody to Ghana. Well, Jesus sent you to your neighborhood. How well is that working? Probably not going to get a trip to Ghana tell you at least talk to your neighbor. I was part of a church in the 80s by... a that had a pastor that wrote a book called The Baby Boomerang. And and basically what he was saying was that baby boomers are all going to boomerang back to the church. And those late 80s, I mean, I could preach on tithing and 20 people would get saved. And it was just like an amazing sociological thing that was happening in our culture. A bunch of people that grew up in church rebelled and became hippies and ran off and did all kinds of silly stuff. Now they're trying to raise kids and they're going like, this isn't working so good. Maybe there was something to that church thing and they all came back to church and had a cup of coffee to see whether or not it was God. And this was an amazing an amazing sociological thing that happened. But back then 3 or 4 out of 5 people if if they were asked to church would have gone to church. 4 out of 5 according to the barnes statistics. Today is that true? Would 4 out of 5 Americans come to church if you invited them? Here's the crazy thing. Still 50% would. That blew my mind. I I would have told you it was probably like 20%. Because I think they're pretty mad at us. I think they're they're pretty done with us. I think they're sick of us. The truth is, they don't even know we exist. We're totally irrelevant. We're just like somebody that's still doing... Oh, there are people that still do that, aren't there? Oh yeah, those are just the angry people that yell on the debates never mind okay um 50 percent two-thirds say that they're spiritual people and then more than half of them say that their religious faith is very important to them can you believe that 57 percent say that their religious faith is still important to them about half claim that they're actively seeking something better spiritually than what they've experienced 40% of young unchurched adults talk about their faith matters with friends and family during a typical week. Unfortunately, they're not going to boom around back here, are they? See, when I was pastoring in the 80s and 90s, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. Because I could preach on anything and somebody would have stubbed their toe and said, I know there's a God, I'm coming to church. And I would say, you want to give your life to Jesus? They'd say, absolutely, that's why I'm here was easy. Today, they're not just coming back, are they? Fortunately, Jesus didn't say, Who shall come back? He said, Who shall go? Let's look at the Bible. Got a bunch of Bible. You thought, this guy's not even going to open the Bible? Okay, get ready. Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. I kind of like that passage, don't you? Like, the Lord's going to bless me. He's going to bless the church. He's going to bless the Christian nations. And we're going to be this amazing blessing. I'm like, sign me up. I like blessing. That'll be cool. That'll be fun. That's awesome. God, can we do this? And then I go away to my... I, I go to this Abbey. Like I'm in this 18-month cohort. I go for a week every four different times. Read 18 books on like how to be quiet. Um, I, it's amazing what they can say about how to be quiet. Um, <laughs> seriously, I'm like, gosh. Okay. Um, so... One of the things that I went to this class, and they have these professors come, these theologians, and theologians just love to mess you up. You ever notice that? If you get around a theologian, they just like, you think it's this, but it's really this. I'm like, gosh. They did the whole thing on the Trinity this last week. I still am mind blown. I'm trying to, have like, mutuality. Okay. Um, this one is on, um, what does it mean to be blessed? So this guy gives this whole lecture. He's a professor at George Fox. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, I don't have this passage on the screen, so you're just going to have to listen or, or yeah, actually open a Bible. Uh, Matthew 5, starting in verse 3, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. That's a good blessing, right? Poor kingdom of heaven. Like that one. Blessed are those who mourn. If you mourn, you're going to get what? For they will be comforted. That's a good one. Blessed are the meek, for they will do what? They're going to inherit the whole earth. That's awesome. Like that one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Another good one. Like that one. We don't like to go to verse 10. So, of course, this guy preaches all out of verse 10, 11, and 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. American Western mindset, blessing is stuff, isn't it? If I, That means I'm going to get blessed. I'm going to get a house. Cool. Blessed. Thanks, Lord. I'm blessed. No. Blessed if you're, are you persecuted because what? You're inheriting the kingdom. I never put persecution and blessing in the same sentence. Not interested, thank you. Verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you. Love that one, don't you? Love to be insulted. Somebody just called me number 1 driving the driving to church, you know, like, "Hey, you're number 1." No, that's an insult. Per- blessed are those who blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you. Falsely say all kinds of evil against you because what? Because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's blessing. That's not how I see blessing. Who will I send? I'll send the blessed. Mark sixteen fifteen says this. He said to them, "Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation." Unfortunately, there are people in this world today that don't like it when you preach the gospel. It doesn't just make them angry; it makes them want to shoot you. There are people today that have, have, have given their lives in public schools and in courthouses and all kinds of different areas simply because they are believers. Christian, non-Christian, boom, you're the Christian, you're dead. I remember in the 70s when I came to Christ, one of the most popular books around was a book called The Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anybody remember that? People were like reading that all the time because they're like, back in the old day, they used to hurt Christians. Can you believe that they did this and they did that? It was horrific and yet it was something we're like, whoa, we don't have to read The Fox's Book of Martyrs. We're living it today. Not just foreign. Martyrdom is something that's happening everywhere we look. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, but I got to hang out with him. His name is Andrew White. They call him the Bishop of Baghdad. He, he is probably one of the most impressive people I've ever been around, quite honestly. And, uh, I was receiving as a district supervisor hate mail about him coming to our district and speaking in a couple of our churches and... So I did a bunch of research about the guy, and I just went like, seriously, I'm not even worthy of the care of the guy's Bible. I can't even figure out what they would be complaining about because, uh, I mean, I think basically the beef was he hung out with people of other faiths, some of which have persecuted Christians. Um, I think a guy that baptizes 13 people and 12 of them are murdered that next week is a fairly legitimate Christian who has to have the entire Baghdad military assign an entire platoon to keep him alive. That's fairly legitimate stuff, don't you think? I mean, people that everywhere they go, they're trying to kill the guy because he believes in Jesus. I mean that's that's legitimate stuff. Who am I gonna send? Luke twenty four forty six through forty eight says he told them, this is what it was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You will be witnesses to these things. It's amazing when Jesus raises from the dead, it's the same power that raised Him from the dead that lives where? It lives in me. And one of the problems with Western Christianity is it's often powerless. And we live in a world that needs the power of God. Don't short sell prayer and what God can do in the miraculous. You're filled with power. Don't just walk around like you. There's nothing you can do and woe is me and the world's turning against us. And if you listen to all the politicians, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I can't even go there. (laughs) But let's understand this. Somebody didn't die to make America great. He died to redeem you. And that takes power. And he died to heal people's lives. He died for our cultures to be touched by the power of God. And so many people are so worried that the whitewashed religion of of yesteryear of America is going to hell in a handbasket. But I'm telling you right now that there's a whole lot of people that live without power that need the power of God, not just a whitewashed version of Christianity. Live in power. Go in power. Who will I send? John 20, verse 21. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. He's sending you in what? In peace. That's wonderful that we've sent Dan. It's wonderful that we've sent Andrew. It's wonderful that we've sent this person, that person. But I send you with peace. Why would I send you with peace? Why would that be of importance to Jesus? I send you not to build a church, not to answer your phone every time, not to do this. But part of the reason I'm in a monastery is because who's in charge of my soul? I had to ask myself that question. Who's going to take care of my soul? Church? It's Pastor Dan's responsibility. Who's going to take care? I have to take care of my soul. So the very things that I hate are the things that I need because my soul is what's important. And if I am not walking in peace, guess what? I'm, I'm, I'm outside of the will of God. The very thing that drew me to Christ was the peace that passes all understanding. The very thing that most people don't experience in our world is peace. That's why we over-medicate, we over-entertain, we overeat, we over-everything. Why? Because we don't have peace. I send you in what? Peace. Why? Because the world needs peace. How many have ever seen this picture of this bridge? I live just a few minutes from that bridge. Just happened in the 19, I think it was the 40s. 1940, I think it happened. And the anniversary was just a couple of months ago. And so it was a big spread in the newspaper and I started reading up on it. I swear to you that I'm scarred from seeing that my whole life. My aunt and uncle lived right with a view of the new one. And, and uh, every time I drive across a bridge, I, that plays in the back of my mind. Now, I don't know about you, but again, I said I like control. And when I'm driving across the bridge, I know that some dead engineer made this. He drew it because there is no new bridges in our state, are there? Maybe one that's happening somewhere. I think it's called the Big Dig. Anyway, um, so we're going across a bridge and some dead engineers' ideas, and we're the guys that built it, who knows how they were doing that day. So I'm in complete trust of people that are no longer even with us. And I, I'm thinking, like, that could happen. Do you know that the, the gusts, when that happened, were only 30 to 50 miles an hour? That's just a good evening around here, isn't it? It's not that big a deal. I mean, we had hundred regularly. Every year we'll hit hundred somewhere around here. And so I've been talking about this and uh, I've had old people come and tell me like, no, no, you don't understand. We used to drive across this. And the reason it was called Galloping Gertie is because it was like the ocean. And as you were driving, you literally couldn't see the car in front of you. Because they cut so much steel out of the design and the engineers are like, I can do this. We can make it happen. It'll work fine. We can cut this. We can cut that. And so as you would drive, it would like sway and like waves. Now, I'm thinking it's called galloping Gertie because of that picture. No, it's because of normal driving across it. That's not a good sign, right? If you're driving across it and all of a sudden the other car in front of you disappears, I'm going to get a little nervous. Seriously? Okay. No no one was killed during this, but I think about this because when I became a Christian, people told me that Jesus was the bridge. You're over here, you're this terrible sinner, you live in Tacoma, look at God is over here in Gig Harbor, and it's all beautiful and pristine, and if you can get over the hump of of that water, your sin, you can get to God, but you can't get there, can you? Nope, I can't get there, but Jesus is that bridge, right? You ever get that? I heard that. That's like, okay, I'm, I need the bridge. I'll take the bridge. And my idea of this is like, when you build a shoddy bridge, it's you doing it yourself. When Jesus builds a bridge, it's like the ones that we see today. It's like eight lanes, maybe more. I don't know. It's huge, massive. You don't ever worry about that thing swaying or a 30 mile an hour gust. Listen, the bridge is Jesus. And, and when we're on that bridge of Jesus, we're full of peace. When we're on the bridge of Galloping Gertie, ain't no peace because we're living it ourselves. I'll close in this last story. One of my favorite books of all time is a book called Unbroken. If you've not read it, I encourage you to. It's it's the Louis Zamperini story, and Louis was just. My wife teaches second grade dual language in Tacoma. Uh, half the days in Spanish. Half the day is in English. I go every week on Fridays and volunteer with those guys. I love these little toothless wonders. (laughs) But um, it makes me think about Louis because Louis felt unloved because he was an immigrant kid. And her classroom's full of immigrant kids. Fact is, we're all immigrants of something, aren't we? None of us were here unless you're Native American. So here's this kid who didn't fit in. He found out he could run. So he started running. All of a sudden, he's a popular kid. All of a sudden, he's in the 36th Olympics in Berlin. That's pretty legit. That happens and joins World War II and is flying and as a pilot. and His plane is in mess, and so they give him this lemon of a plane. I said, like, don't worry, just go out and look for some people that are down. Next thing he knows, he's down. Thirteen of his crew members, um, all but three of them passed in the, in the crash. So he pops himself into the rubber raft and lives for 47 days floating at sea. Loses his buddies along the way because they can't take it. Day 33, one of them passes. I mean, 47 minutes in a rubber raft is a long time, I'm thinking only to find himself washing up on one of the Marshall Islands. Hurrah, right? Oh, not so much. The Japanese had occupied that and they begin to abuse him. He ends up in several different prisoner of war camps where one of them, the last one, there is one particular man, the bird, they called him, who loved to abuse him. Louis came home after the end of World War II and and was trying to get life together, but you can only imagine what he would be going through. PTSD wasn't even spoken of then, but he was living it. I mean, things weren't good at home. He was drinking like a, like a sailor. Imagine that. His wife wouldn't give up on him, however. And she kept asking him to go to a Billy Graham crusade. It doesn't come out in the movie or the book so well. He ends up, getting saved at a Billy Graham crusade and instantaneously peace that passes all understanding. Peace. He lives to 97, just died a couple years ago, as a Christian evangelist. Now we have a former governor who's mad at our president and at the United States military because they haven't done enough for people coming home now, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't be doing more, but I'm trying to tell you, look, it wasn't all the stuff that Louie got. It was Jesus. And Billy Graham's not out there right now. You are. There are tons of young boys that have fallen out of the sky and are stuck on an island of pain that needs someone to be Jesus to them. Who do I send? Let's send Dan. It's a great idea. He'll go for us and we'll have a baby and we'll just hang out here and play videos of him. I send you into your neighborhood. The bearer of, the image of Jesus who loved this world so much that he gave his only son. We have the worship team come. We all have friends are living in peril. We all have neighbors who we don't want to deal with because of their stuff. We all have young kids, young immigrant kids that are living in our neighborhood that nobody is giving the time of day to. And Jesus said, I have a great idea. I'm going to commission each and every one of my people to go into all the world and love on them. Heavenly Father, You have given us life. I was that broken teenage kid full of drugs and alcohol and whatever else my smart mouth could get me into. And You sent Glenn, Lord. You sent Glenn who just loved me where I was even though I was unlovable. And because of Glenn loving me, I came to you, Jesus. I received that peace that passes all understanding. And I'm just having a sense today that some of us are living outside of peace, even though we may have known Jesus for decades. So if you're without peace, would you just lift your hand right now and say, I'm in the middle of a storm and I'm not finding peace. I've known Jesus for a long time, but I haven't had peace. Would you just lift your hand and God, I would say right now to those that are without peace, that know You, let the Holy Spirit fall upon them. Let the peace that passes all understanding be their guide, be their victory, and be their joy. We're going to face... Our own times at sea when the water is rough and all we have is this silly little rubber raft. But yet, Jesus, You're in the midst of us. Let's pray this prayer together. Dear Lord Jesus, thank You for dying on the cross for my sin. I give You my life. Every bit of it. May Your peace fall upon me. And may I go into my own neighborhood, my own schools, in Your victory, in Your joy, in Your peace. Thanks, God, for Your grace upon us. In Jesus' name, Amen.